You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross, the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Don't be all else to me, save that. Will you join me for a word of prayer? Blessed Lord Jesus, in this resurrection season, we give you thanks for the victory that you have made secure by conquering our ancient foes of sin, death, and the devil. And as we come before you, we pray that you would transform us by your word and Holy Spirit, that we might truly learn to live and walk as what we are, those saved by the pure gift of your grace. This we ask in your precious name, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. I'm going to come back to the pulpit a couple times during this sermon just to bring certain words back to your mind. 1 John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. John is amazed. Can you hear it in the tone of his voice? See what kind of love the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God. It's hard for us at this moment in history to hear those words to be as surprising as they truly were. See, because we live in a culture, well, first of all, we're Christians, and second of all, we live in a culture that is increasingly post-Christian. That is, it has some sort of cultural memory of Christianity, has inherited some of its vocabulary, but lost the depth of its meaning. No one referred to anyone as a child of God in the ancient world, unless you were somebody like Hercules. Hercules was a child of the gods. You were not. Perseus was a child of the gods, and you were not. Theseus was a child of the gods, and you were not. But in our culture, we say child of God to mean in generically sort of every person. That's one of the reasons why we continue to use liturgy. Liturgy carries with it the memory of the faithful biblical interpretation of previous generations. Last week after this service, um, we had a baptism. Normally we do baptisms in the context of, of worship, but this family had some frail members. They didn't want to risk exposure with the COVID situation going on, so we had it afterward. In the opening prayer of holy baptism, we hear these words. Deacon Michael almost always says them. He says, We are born children of a fallen humanity. In the waters of baptism, we are reborn children of God and inheritors of eternal life. 
Did you catch that? We're born children of a fallen humanity. None of us by nature are children of God. We are people made in God's image. We are creatures of God and unique in that way, but we're not yet children of God. We don't have inheritance rights in God's kingdom simply by virtue of being born. We need to be claimed by God's sovereign grace as one of His own in order to receive that title. And this is what John is wondering at. It's not just that our sins are forgiven. That's great. That's enough. It's not that we're just to receive, we'll receive internal, eternal life, but rather that we are children of God. Jesus is our Lord and our Savior, but He's also our brother in this regard. And I love the fact that all the apostles in the New Testament, James, John, Peter, Paul, they just stop at moments and just, like in mid-thought, they'll pause and they'll wonder and they'll just break into praise to God for the glory that He's given us. And this is one of those moments. It needs to catch us up short for us really to realize what's going on. Because in Jesus Christ, something unique has happened. C.S. Lewis, um, un unequivocally, undoubtedly, the most important publicly in Christian person of the 20th century, more influential on people from professors down to elementary school kids, very articulate about his faith. He came to Christ as an adult because Gerard Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, and Charles Williams, who wrote books people don't mostly read anymore, <laughs> came to him and said, you know, you love all these stories. You love all these myths. And he did. He loved the Norse myths. He and his brother had been devotees of, of all the, that Nordic mythology. He loved the classical myths. He loved medieval literature. That was what he was a professor of. And they, they said, what you don't understand is that all those... What you do understand is that all those stories represent the deepest longings of the human heart. So, but what you don't understand is that in the person of Jesus, all those mythologies became fact. Jesus represents the intersection of all those dreams that are written into the DNA of our human person, but taking on historical form in flesh. And this is one of those moments, and this is one of those items that is like that. All of us have this aspiration to be discovered to be something more than we are. Think about the stories that influenced us and have influenced generations of people. Cinderella, Ella of the Cinders, the little girl whose job is to sweep out the fireplace, rising simply by virtue of who she is to being princess. Or if you're a guy, the sword in the stone, the mere squire, who is destined to become king when they can discover in a, moment of, a momentary emergency that they can pull the sword from the stone that proclaims them to be the true king. For modern people, the Harry Potter series, the boy who lived, the boy who lives under the cupboard, under the stairs, is discovered to be the one person who can defeat the greatest evil wizard of all time. Or to even get simpler, the ugly duckling. <laughs> Rejected, despised, 
an outsider who becomes the most beautiful person on the lake. It's the deep, one of the deepest things in our human heart. And in the person of Jesus, what he has done for us, it becomes fact. We are raised by pure grace without any effort at all. We are saved by grace through faith and raised up to the heavenly places. And God has made us not just an inheritor of eternal life, but forever a servant in the house, but a child. An inheritor of who he is and all that he has to give. This is what John is wondering at. And I think he's wondering at it in part because of the reason for why the letter of 1 John was written. 1 John was written because the church was being torn apart by false teachers. Seems fairly logical to say, if we are given salvation by grace through faith as a pure gift, that everything in the Christian life comes as that pure gift without any effort on our part. But that's not at all what Jesus taught and what the apostles taught. That teaching, similar to what we call today progressive Christianity, is, was tearing the church of John's day apart, and he felt the need to write this letter. Hear what he says when you get to verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. See, what the false teachers were laying out was that because you've received this incredible gift of grace, now you have power you never imagined. Now you have holiness without effort without even cooperation with the Spirit. Go on and keep doing what you've been doing. This was similar to what was going on in the church in Corinth, although John was up in Asia Minor. Just keep on doing what you're doing. God likes to forgive. You like to sin. It's a match made in heaven. <laughs> but this is false doctrine. This is false doctrine. Even when the person preaching that false doctrine still preaches salvation by grace through faith. Because you see, God has not only saved us from the powers of sin and death, He has saved us for His kingdom. And while we are and we should be in intense wonder at the fact that we have been made children of God without any effort at all on our parts as a pure gift of God's sovereign grace, God doesn't want us forever to be infants in the faith, as St. Paul will say. My family right now is, is addicted to a show. I guess, uh, I don't know how old it is. I think it's still being in production. It's called The Goldbergs. We love this show because... Well, I graduated 88. At least you graduated, what, 91, 90? Yeah. So this is, it's all set in the 80s. My kids love it because it's slapsticky family humor. We love it because it's all the songs and all the stupid pop culture references that were current when I was in middle school and high school. <laughs> 
The story of the, 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 the ongoing drama of the show revolves around an over-attentive mother who not only can't cut the apron strings, she ties them as tight as possible to keep her kids coming back home so she feels needed. She doesn't want her kids to be able to do their own laundry when they go off to college because that makes them come home. <laughs> this is not the kind of father we have in heaven. <laughs> we are forever his children by his sovereign grace, but he wants us to be able to function as mature adults in the faith. He has saved us for his kingdom and we need to learn how to walk in a way that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called. This involves what the church fathers called synergism. Now, synergism is verboten when it comes to salvation, but it's critical when it comes to sanctification, which means becoming holy. It's, this, is a rough, this is a horrible analogy, very crude, and I apologize. But it, it's, it's like your parents giving you a bicycle. It's a pure gift. And people say to you, do you have a bicycle? And you say, yes, I keep it in the garage. But I don't ride it. No, of course I don't ride it. I don't know how to ride it. This is akin to saying, I gave my life to Jesus, but I don't know how to talk to him. I don't know how to walk with him. I don't have a relationship with him. I'm counting on cashing in that get-out-of-jail-free card when I get to that stage of the game. <laughs> This is not what God has saved us for. The lawlessness that John is speaking of here means the person doesn't have a king. The reason you're lawless is you have no lawgiver. Remember, John is going to earlier in this letter say this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now when he says to us that we, those who practice sin, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness, what he does not mean is that anyone who makes a mistake is without Jesus. Because he's already said what I just said a minute ago earlier in the letter. The word that is translated is here, the practice of sinning, is one word in the Greek. And the verb tense is tough to translate into English. It's why they used a word phrase. It means doing it consistently and with intent and on an ongoing basis. What he's saying is that you can't both claim to trust in Christ and set your cap at sinning. Meaning doing it intentionally over and over and over again. If you do that, you're not abiding in Christ, which means you're not really trusting in Him at all. It's a warning that He's giving, and there were historical reasons why He would give that warning for some of His followers. Rather, what He's, what he's trying to talk to this torn apart church about is the reality that we hear from our reading from the Gospels today. Jesus' word during this resurrection appearance, and it occurs right after that story on the road to Emmaus, which we heard last week. They get back, they tell the disciples what they experienced on the road, and there's Jesus to talk to them. And Jesus gives this, this critical piece of interpretive guidance to his people. 
There are sections all through the New Testament that New Testament scholars call creedal statements, meaning before we had the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed, these were short statements of Scripture that would serve as the foundation for those later documents and those later affirmations of the church. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus, when he appears to them, says this. He says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. That repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Jesus forever ties repentance to forgiveness. Not one-time repentance, and after that, you've got your get-out-of-jail-free card. Please go about your way. But rather, an ongoing life of repentance. Because what it means to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior means to reject everything that is not of Christ. Not once, but an ongoing basis. See, when St. Paul in Romans 7 says that, he kind of goes into this big, long lament about, I don't understand myself. I do what I don't want to do. And I, do, I don't do what I want to do. And who's going to save me from this body of sin? He's lamenting. He's frustrated. Frustrated at himself. He's not doing what John talks about here and setting his cap at sin. Persistently and actively embracing and saying, you know what? It's unavoidable. I might as well get used to it and enjoy it. (laughs) He's not pulling it to himself and saying, I'm inseparable from my sin. If God loves me, he's got to love my sin too. No, he's lamenting his own weakness and crying out to God. And God responds. This is why he goes on to say, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. We've been given this bike called salvation. Now we need to learn how to ride it. Do any of you who know how to ride a bike, do you remember back when someone was trying to teach you how to ride a bike? Well, you just get on it and you pedal and you stand up and you're going, What? You're kidding, right? This is how I wanted to ride a bike. One foot on the ground, baby. <laughs> I remember, I would go one, it was always the left foot had to hit the ground. So I'm standing like that. See, I can, it's right in my body. I can still remember that feeling. One pedal around, foot down. One pedal around, foot down. Then my parents stuck training wheels on my bike. Oh, that was beautiful. Look at that. It sets me back up. It sets me back up. But that wasn't really riding a bike. At one point, my dad realized I was never going to learn to ride a bike until he took those training wheels off. And you know what I was thinking about when he took those training wheels off? How hard that ground was. (laughs) I was thinking about my chin hitting the handlebar and my elbows getting scraped and my knees getting scraped more. That's how it is when we hear about becoming holy. We're thinking about all the stuff we've got to give up and how it's going to hurt to give it up. Can I tell you, I did scrape my knees, and it did hurt. (laughs) But it was so worth it when I learned to ride the bike. What? I'll never forget the first time I realized I was balancing. That feeling of freedom. 
We're called to be holy, called to be transformed into the likeness of Christ, not to cramp our style and make us give up things that we love. That may be part of the process because we love the wrong things. But rather, so that we can experience that kind of freedom in our spiritual life. That peace that passes all understanding. That sense that God is walking through me through the valley of the shadow of death. And I need fear no evil. A living relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This is the experience of being a Christian that we're supposed to have. But this involves us cooperating with the Spirit of God in our lives. Not only owning the bike, but taking it out and learning to ride it. But here's the good news. When you do that, it is as the old song says, a bicycle built for two. He's with you. He's going to be in the seat behind you, whispering over your ear, giving you guidance, giving you power. Would you get to the hard uphills? And I grew up down in central Pennsylvania where there was a lot of that. I was desperately wishing there was someone behind me to put the pedal to the metal. (laughs) And that is what he has promised to do and to be in your life. We are saved by grace through faith. That is the proclamation of Easter. But we are saved for a life where we are made worthy of the great inheritance we have as children of God. Let us learn to do that. To walk with Him and to grow into the fullness of what we've been called to be. Will you join me for a word of prayer? Gracious Lord, the prospect even with your help, even with you doing all the heavy lifting of becoming holy, seems horribly daunting. It's so easy just to think about what we're giving up and to keep our eyes on the ground and not to keep our eyes on the horizon and the freedom you have in store for us as we grow. Strengthen us, Lord, to abide in you, to not only proclaim your victory, but to live from it as the basis of our lives, to struggle, maybe to skin our knees, but to know that you will set us upright and heal us and help us grow until finally we possess the fullness of life, that abundant life that you came to give us. And so transformed, we may be a better witness to the world of all these things. This we ask in your precious name, Jesus, for you do live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Be thou my best thought in the day and the night Waking or sleeping, thy presence my life